Shalom, everyone. I'm Mai Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and this is another episode of Insight into Isaiah. And we're glad to have you. Uh, in the last episode, we covered one of the most powerful chapters in Isaiah, which was chapter 53, a tremendous passage that is very easy for any person to see the parallels between it and Yeshua of Nazareth. In fact, it's one of the most compelling pieces that really speaks to his death and performing the work of redemption by having all of the sins of the world uh, put upon him and uh, that which happened uh, historically in his crucifixion. In fact, as I shared with you then, uh, if you just take the words of Isaiah 53 and you put it in the form of a small tract, no additional words, and you hand it out, in the Jewish community, they will think that you have written this major Christian tract. They do not realize that this is the prophecy of Isaiah speaking very powerfully to it. Now, how do my brethren overcome that? Well, they tend to try to translate or interpret, I should say, uh, the servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah into Israel itself. And there are other passages that we're going to see here about the servant, and they try to make that into Israel. It just doesn't fit, doesn't fit at all. Uh, and clearly, um, the servant of the Lord is someone who specifically is called to the Lord, anointed of the Lord, which is the very definition of the Messiah, the anointed one. So we are now at Isaiah ch uh, chapter 54, and we're continuing on uh, from the, the incredible inspiration of what the Messiah has done for us in the work of redemption. Join with me now at verse 1. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth in the joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwelling, spare not, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations, and they will resettle the desolate cities. The, before I go further, this is a very powerful uh, explanation. It's a, it's a word picture being given to us by Isaiah about something incredible that's going to take place. Something wonderful will take place. And it's like the picture of a, of a desolate woman who has no children suddenly bearing children even more than a married woman, you know, would normally have. So there's this abundance that comes forth. Uh, the word picture carries to a tent. Uh, about a tent is set up, but now it says stretch out the cord, stretch out the size of the tent, increase the size of it. And what it's really trying to express to us is there's something wonderful that takes place in the, in the heart and the life of every believer uh, when you accept God's redemption, when you are the recipient of what um, the Messiah has come to do. Uh, then your life is going to be transformed. You're, and in fact, let me just put it to you as simple as this. We're mortals. Uh, we all live a certain finite number of days. But by receiving the redemption of the Messiah, we receive the gift of eternal life. And our life 
is, is essentially not limited to our mortal life anymore. It's now going to explode into the life that will be in the kingdom. And uh, it's trying to draw this comparison to um, <coughs> what is the great benefit uh, of what the Messiah has done for us. And so it's, it's sell, telling them, uh, shout for joy. Uh, because something incredible has taken place uh, that you're going to benefit from. It continues now at verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your husband is your maker whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all of the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken, grieved in spirit, even like the wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Again, he's repeating what is the work of the Redeemer. What is the relationship that we now have with God as a result of him doing the work of redemption, us accepting that redemption, and being able to go forward with him. I want to take note of a couple of things in here that are rather significant. And one of them has to do with uh, that the the maker, the creator, also equates himself to the husband. And the Messiah is regarded as the bridegroom. So that's the husband part. And we know that Yeshua is the creator as well. And so he's the husband, he's the bridegroom in this relationship. And he's also called the Lord of hosts. The Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Now we got, but then it says who is, who is called God of all the earth. Yeshua is God of all of the earth. Uh, now for those who um, get a little confused and they think, well, Yeshua, he's the son of God, but he's not God. Uh, you know, he came to do the work of redemption, but he, you know, he, he's not the same thing as God the Father uh, kind of thing. And they get confused about this. Um, there's a very simple kind of question that you can ask yourself that will help sort this out. And that is to ask yourself, who, who saved you? Who did the work of redemption for you? If you're going to say that Yeshua of Nazareth is not God then you're going to say that a man, um, even though he's appointed by the Lord, that a man is the one who provided for your salvation. The Torah is very explicit that no man can stand in for another man. A father can't stand in for a son and vice versa. Um, it has to be God. It has to be the Lamb of God sacrifice, not just any sacrifice. Uh, it has to be that which comes from God himself. And so for any of us to proclaim that we've received redemption from the Messiah, we have to say that the Messiah is in fact God. The redemption comes from God. God is the one who does the saving. 
And so it's not a substitute. Uh, we had the sacrificial system to explain how God will accept the substitute for the payment of sin um, and retribution. But the sins that we have before God, which are worthy of death, to, to be, have a payment for that requires the death of the sacrifice, but it has to be a sacrifice much far greater in value than any and all of us. And so, therefore, it must be one that is brought by God himself, and God does the work. And here in this passage, the words are very specific about equating the Redeemer as being God of all of the earth and how all of this is done. Uh, verse 7, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. I've been mentioning to you as we've been going through Isaiah the famous Hoftors of Consolation, this great hermeneutical sermon uh, that tells this great story about how God gathers his people back. This is one of the passages that's uh, in there where if we look at the, if we step back from the history of Israel, um, Israel was brought out of Egypt, they were born into a nation, they came into the land, and then there's a whole series of stories, history of Israel, of times when they obeyed the Lord, times when they didn't, uh, going into captivity because they disobeyed the Lord, uh, the different kings and prophets that were sent to them and so forth, and then we came to the great worldwide um, expulsion into the nations, the house of Israel going in through the Assyrians and the house of Judah going in through um, the Roman Empire. And essentially, uh, when, when those things happened, there's no question that God uh, moved away from the favor of Israel and, and began to forsake them uh, because it was a punishment. Uh, for their misdeeds and for them forgetting the Lord and failing to uh, keep the covenant of the Lord. Now, some have advocated, this is church theology, yeah, you know, God finally got his fill of them and decided, that's it, we're done with you, and now we're going to start with something new, and they decided it's the church and so forth. But as you can see here, it says, no, for a brief moment, I forsook you, and, but with great compassion I will gather you. And the, the great theme of the great prophecy carried out here along with the Redeemer and Isaiah is this theme of that not only does the Messiah do the work of redemption, but that he then uh, comes back to those who are sinful, those who have, have uh, departed from the Lord, and he draws them back with great compassion and uh, that he will regather them from the nations where they've been scattered and bring them back to the land to be in his kingdom. Um, verse 8, in an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The same Redeemer Messiah who was a covering for all of our sins, is the same Redeemer Messiah that will gather up all of the people that belong to him, the people that he made a promise to their father, Abraham, that he said to them, uh, uh, your, your descendants will be like the stars of the heaven, they will be like the sands of the sea. He says, I know who those are, 
And I made this promise to your father, and I will fulfill that promise I made to your father, and I will draw you back, despite uh, you not knowing who you are, despite you being so separated that uh, you feel like God has forsaken you, uh, despite all of the bad that can possibly come upon you and the judgment, despite all of those things, my judgment is not forever. Uh, I will draw you back, and I will bring you back. The very definition of what we call the good news is the good news is this message of that God will bring us back, that God will restore us, uh, and that we are not doomed uh, to uh, where we're at and and, uh, the like. Uh, Let's just think for a moment how in the world can God logically do that? Um, You and I today, uh, we are living in the nations where we are living, and the reason why we are living in the nations where we're living, and the reason why we're in the circumstances of uh, whatever country we may live in, is because of not of decisions that we made. I didn't, when I was born, fill out a form and says, yeah, I think I'd like to be born in America as opposed to any place else. No, we were subject to uh, things that the previous generations had done. We were subject to whatever our fathers had done. And if you trace back all of us that are now scattered in the nations, we didn't make the decisions to be where we're at in the world today. We are, this, we are a product of decisions that were made by our ancestors beforehand. So our ancestors are the ones who put us in this situation. God knows that. He knows you didn't choose to do that. And so he is willing to show compassion to draw us back in each generation back to him again. So in a sense, you you could say this is an incredible uh, sense of fairness on God's part. He's giving every one of us in every generation a chance to be a part of him and his kingdom, to live our lives according to his commandments, according to his covenant, and And ultimately, there's a final thrust uh, at the end of the ages where God makes an impassioned call to pull back. Uh, Part of this has to do with this final thing is because in the final generation, it is to be the greatest generation in the history of the world is to have the most number of people. And so if, if God's going to reach out uh, to the last generation in the final days, then it's going to have to be a very great effort on his part because there's a very great generation that exists. This is one of the things that kind of encourages me uh, for the days that we live in. We today truly are a, the greatest generation in the history of the world. We have more people alive today on the, living in the world than have ever lived before in the history of the world of all of the other generations combined. Let, let me say that again. We have more people today than have ever been alive in all of the generations before. So truly, 
uh, we see today, and I see in the evidence of the modern messianic movement, of the days of uh, the house of Judah returning to the land of Israel, the circumstances that we see taking place in the world today, the issues, they are all consistent with what the prophets said would be taking place. And, and uh, for the end of days and for the last generation. And these words have become even more profound even to this generation uh, and to us in these days. So we, we look back and we can see how God did judge Israel. But we can also see the evidences now that God is being very compassionate to us. And the same Redeemer who did the work of pay, making payment for our sins is the same one who's stirring our soul and being a part of our faith even today. Um, verse 9, he says, For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Let me work this passage from the back end and move to the front. The expression, my covenant of peace, that is a very specific covenant that's not like any of the other covenants that God has made. It's a future covenant. It is a covenant that the Messiah will establish with us in the Messianic age. In the Messianic kingdom, once he returns, he will establish the covenant of peace. That is the seventh covenant that God has introduced us to and explained to us uh, throughout Scripture. The first one, if you recall, was the covenant that God made with Adam and with all of mankind. Then he made a covenant with Noah that he would not flood the earth again, and he makes reference to that covenant here uh, at the same time. And then he had a covenant with Abraham and with the fathers. And then there was a covenant made with the children of Israel through Moses. Then there was a covenant made with King David, you know, that his throne would be established forever and ever. The Messiah then came to give us the new covenant, a renewal of all of those things taking place. And finally, there's going to be one more covenant when the Messiah comes back and establishes his kingdom. It's called the covenant of peace. Throughout various passages, we have had this covenant hinted to us. It's been explained that it would be coming in the future, and it's something very special that goes beyond all the other covenants. Having stepped back from that explanation, by the way, that is the correct biblical explanation of covenants, where did we get the idea that there was only two covenants, an old and new covenant? It, 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 it's, it's nonsense. It is a misrepresentation of Scripture. And what is even more profound is that at no time when God has established these different covenants, did he ever take one covenant and replace all the other covenants and no, render null and void previous covenants? For example, when God made the covenant with Noah, he did not make the covenant he made with Adam with all mankind go away. He didn't supplant it or replace it. 
the same thing is true when God established the covenant with Abraham. He didn't make the covenant with Noah go away. I submit to you that we still see the sign of the covenant between God and Noah even to this day every time we see a rainbow. That promise is still in place. That agreement that he made with Noah is still in place with us. And they don't all get lumped together to become just, you know, quote, the old covenant. They are very specific covenants with very specific promises. Uh, The covenant that God made with King David is a very real covenant which sets the standard for the Messiahship and the kingship of the Messiah. Uh, The Messiah didn't come and just decide, oh, I'm going to be king. That was pre-established in the covenant that God made with Daniel, or excuse me, with King David, his father. And those things are still in effect uh, to this day. So not only is it an oversimplification to go around just referring to all of this as the old covenant, It is fraught with incredible error. It sets up the person to not understand the history of what, how God has been manifesting himself to mankind or his great promises that he has for us and the great work that he's doing in the future. And quite honestly, in our future, we have a future covenant still coming to us that we are going to look forward to. And he declares uh, that part of that covenant will come as evidence of this great compassion of gathering us from the nations at the end of the ages and bringing us to his kingdom. Now, let me go back to the reference about Noah, since we talked about the back end. You know, um, elsewhere, Noah is made reference to. Yeshua made reference to Noah at the end of the age, where he said that uh, in the days of Noah, men did not understand that judgment was coming. And he has said that in the final generation, uh, many men will not understand what is getting ready to take place. It is certainly true. It is certainly true in our day. And uh, so as you look around about you, and you wonder about the whole world. I mean, you know, the scripture is pretty, pretty direct, pretty specific. We have a holy God, and he has a plan, and he's planning on coming back, and he's planning on judging the world and being reconciled to the whole world and all of his creation. And we just amble on like nothing's happening. At least that's what the majority of the world does. And that is what the world was like before the judgment of the flood came. Noah was there building the ark, and probably the people were looking at him and was just saying, well, he's just nuts. You know, what, what's he, you know, what's he believe in and, and so forth? Why is he doing all this effort? And it's ridiculous, and we don't need to fool around with that. That's a bunch of nonsense, and we'll just go on about our lives and so forth until, of course, when the rains began and the flood began. Then it was a totally different ball game, and they did not understand, as the Scripture tells us. We have the same dynamic uh, going on in the world today. But in this particular reference to Noah, uh, the, Isaiah is speaking to the very positive thing, and that is that God, knowing that he was going to judge the world, also um, showed grace to Noah and to his family and to the creation that he had made to provide a way for them to be preserved. 
that have provided a way for them to escape that judgment and to make it on further into the world and to be part of God's creation. And the same thing is true of how the Lord views us in this generation. He has the intention to bring us forward with him into his kingdom. Even though we're in the midst of this world, subject to judgment, he's going to find a way to preserve us, protect us, and bring us into his kingdom. And this is all part of what we talk about when we say that, <clears throat> that he's going to show compassion on us and he's going to reach out and gather us again uh, to himself. Verse 10, for the mountains may be removed, the, mills, the, the hills may shake, but loving kindness will be removed from you. I'd like to remind everybody that there was a time in the earth, in fact, in the days of Peleg, that the world, we believe, used to be a Pangaea. In other words, all of the land mass uh, on the earth used to be one kind of like great continent. And that in the days of Peleg, there was a great shaking of the earth. The, uh, uh, the tectonic plates broke apart and formed the different continents that we now have on the earth. That there's plenty of evidence that they used to fit back together again. In fact, maybe you've seen some diagrams that have indicated that. And uh, that is one of the... Um, interesting things that we see about the geophysical nature of the earth and we also are told in the future that at the end of days that there will be a great earthquake a great movement of those tectonic plates and the future scripture of speaking of the kingdom says that the earth at that time will become a great plain and that the sea will be no more now, right now, um, the earth is approximately 30% surface and 70% water. Uh, to reverse that, to say, for example, that the earth will be 70% surface and 30% water, there will have to be a tremendous upheaval of the tectonic plates and the surfaces of the earth. Now, I want to remind everybody that the Bible is very explicit that God did this once before. And what's stopping God from doing this again, of reshaping the, the structure of the earth uh, for his kingdom? And this certainly would be the answer to anyone who would say, well, there's not a, enough surface on the earth for all the saints that would be part of it. If you restructure the earth... There would be more than adequate, you know, for the Messiah's kingdom for it. And this is a reference, actually a, a prophetic reference, saying, yes, there's a time coming at the end when the mountains will be removed, the hills will shake, and we will be a part of that world. Now, thank goodness those particular things apparently take place in the days of what we call the day of the Lord. And we, at that point, have been lifted from the surface of the earth. We'll observe all of those kinds of things. But can you imagine <coughs> being a human being down on the surface of the earth when all the world goes through those cataclysmic changes? It's part of the judgment that will fall upon mankind. It's part of the day of the Lord judgment that will fall uh, at that time. 
which is a very powerful verse describing the day of the Lord and some of its elements. Now, moving to uh, in our same chapter to verse 11, uh, let's take it up from there. It says, O afflicted ones, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of crystal, your entire wall of precious stones. And all your sons will be taught of the Lord, and well-being of your sons will be great. In righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be for me. Whoever assails you will fail because of you. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work, and I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Obviously a very powerful a very positive piece of scripture. This is a declaration from the Lord. We right now, in the world where we're at, we do feel like we're storm-tossed and we're not comforted. We, we, we're not in the kingdom yet. And so we see the ill effects of what the judgment has been upon us in these many generations and in the world, and we're looking forward to his kingdom. And now he uses this interesting picture where he says that he makes us like stones and that he will set our stones in a wall so that we're set for sure, that we're part of that structure and that our foundations will be in sapphires, moreover battlements and rubies, our gates and crystal. And have you ever heard of the explanation about the crystal gates or the pearly gates uh, of the kingdom of heaven? It, part of the reason for that comes from this. Furthermore, this is a parallel description to what we find in the book of Revelation, to the wall that memorializes the 144,000 and their ministry in the Great Tribulation in the final days. It's almost speaking precisely to the 144,000 at the end of the ages, which is embodying and, and representing the very best of the Messiah's kingdom as we go through that period of time, and how that he will preserve and protect. And one of the things the Scripture does allude to is the 144,000 in the Great Tribulation will not die. Uh, they may be part of the events of the world at that time, but they do not suffer physical death, that they will make it to the end, they will be transformed, they will be the ones that welcome and greet the Messiah as he comes into Jerusalem uh, to establish his kingdom. And they are memorialized as being stones in a wall. And that wall is, a, is to provide comfort um, to the tribulation saints. And the word comfort there is the compound word, come into the fort. Um, it's interesting uh, that we've been having a lot of debate in our country recently about uh, the, the validity of building a wall for our southern border or not building one. Uh, the Bible uses walls uh, extensively to explain them as very good things that protect 
and care for, and the 144,000 are memorialized in their ministry as being like a wall uh, for it. The, but the, the, the incredible thing is it talks about the well-being of your sons will be great, righteousness will be established. The prophet Daniel, in Daniel uh, chapter 9 and verse 24, uh, gives a very detailed proclamation by the Messiah, by God, uh, at the start of the kingdom. And one of the things he says that righteousness will be established. Uh, I don't know exactly what that is. But I do know that it's going to be a very good thing. And I'm definitely looking forward to when we can live in a land, that we can live in our communities uh, with one another where righteousness is established, where that we have no fear of what another person may or may not do against us, that we are all uh, well and secure and safe and able to do the things that we want to do to live and have no concern for it. That, that there is no opportunity for someone to form a plan against us, uh, to do harm to us. No weapon will be formed uh, that will come against us. In the days that we live, um, we live in a day of when there's lots of weapons. Uh, but the, the prophecy tells us of the great kingdom that all our swords will be beaten into plowshares, that all of the technology that we use for warfare will assist us in the agricultural world and the construction world and things of that nature, and that we'll not be subject to the weapons of war uh, anymore. In fact, um, I have sitting right here a cup. I have had this cup for many years, um, and it's, I've uh, called it my going out of business cup. Uh, I first got this cup um, early in my uh, walk in the Messianic way at that time. I was a, a part of an aerospace company as a military logist, logistician, and logistics and military logistics is about having what you need when you need it, where you need it, namely beans and bullets and, and gasoline. And it quotes a verse from Isaiah, as well as from Micah, where it says, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and they shall spears into pruning hooks, and nations shall not lift up sword against nation again, neither shall they learn war anymore. And one of the things I used to do as a specialty in my uh, discipline was I provided uh, military training. Uh, to military people on how to use the equipment correctly, how to maintain it and operate it correctly. And um, there's a day coming that all my expertise um, in being able to do that will be turned into the efforts for agriculture and for the benefit of others. And I'm looking forward to that day when I go out of business, so to speak, because we'll be in the kingdom at that time. For those of you who know me personally, this is one of the reasons why each springtime I have fun planting and growing tomatoes. I'm trying to get a leg up on my new job that will be in the kingdom. Uh, so, all right. Uh, the other that I want to mention about this passage of Scripture is that this ties very closely, and this is one of the parallel passages that ties into the whole ministry 
of the 144,000. Revelation chapter 7 describes how there's these 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel that have been called, that they'll be sealed with the name of God in their forehead, and their purpose and function will be to provide comfort and protection to the tribulation saints that are scattered all over the world. And I believe that these 144,000 are not going to be just in one location. They'll be scattered amongst the tribulation saints all over the world. And they will perform this very important function. For them to accomplish that, they obviously have to have a very special anointing and a very special ministry. Because as you know, the days of the tribulation are dangerous. They're very concerning. And the saints are going to need... Um, representatives from the Lord that have power from God, that they have anointing from God to help protect them. And this passage can be directly drawn to them uh, along with other passages that speaks to their ability to um, escape uh, what the enemy might come at them with, uh, to deal with the enemy that might come against them. In fact, there's another parallel passage very similar to this in the prophet Micah. Micah was a contemporary to Isaiah. And in Micah chapter 7, uh, he specifically talks about how that when the enemy comes against them, uh, the remnant in that day, referring to the 144,000, they have but to raise their hand, call upon the name of the Lord, and as their hand comes down, that the enemy will be cut to nothing that he'll be eliminated and no longer to have the effect. Um, these kinds of dramatic things that we're talking about remind us and take us back to the days of when the children of Israel were escaping Egypt. And if you recall, one of the great salvation moments of Egypt was the crossing of the Red Sea and how God blocked the Egyptians to allow the Israelites to cross over on dry land. And then suddenly, when they are safe, then he closes the waters in on the Egyptians, and there's a great victory against the Egyptians. And I have every expectation that in the Great Tribulation, we're going to see such things taking place of that manner. This is the way they're described here by the prophets into the future uh, for it. All right, let me, I have enough time. Let me uh, proceed into chapter 55 just a little bit here. Uh, verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation who know, which knows you uh, will, not run to, will not run to you, because the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, he has glorified you. Again, as you know, <clears throat> when Isaiah wrote this, he didn't make a marker here and say, okay, well, let's start chapter 55. 
you know, that chapters and verses were actually something created in the Scripture uh, somewhere around 1200 A.D. Uh, it was done by Bible printers in an effort to try to index into the Scripture because in truth of fact, when you get a scroll of Isaiah, it just continues to speak. And so this passage... Uh, is not so heavily contrasted with what we've been looking at. It really is speaking to the same thing. It's appealing to us now that we know what God's intending to do, very good to us, that the redemption that God has given to us leads to even greater things for us, and that part of that greater thing is his gathering us uh, to him, showing compassion to us, where he's going to transform our present situation dramatically into the joy uh, of our salvation and the joy of the kingdom. And so he's talking about the whole dynamic of how we wrestle uh, with this thing. We're always looking for a way for us to do something on our part uh, to make it better. Um, I teach a lot about the end times. I teach a lot about um, the coming prophetic scenario of, of the Messiah coming uh, with the great tribulation and the judgments upon the world and then God delivering us and so forth. And I must share something with you that is kind of interesting, and I think it's part of what Isaiah talking about here. A lot of brethren will hear the prophecies and they'll hear the explanation and the scenario that's laid out. And they all of a sudden revert back into themselves and they look at what resources they have. And they ask themselves, okay, how can I take my resources that I've got here to improve my situation, improve my lot, so that I'll be in a better position and a better way um, for all of the things that are coming? And I would remind you <coughs> that the children of Israel, when they left Egypt, even though they hauled a bunch of stuff out of there, it really didn't do them a whole lot of good. Everything that transpired over the course of the next 40 years, it was really by the, by the hand of the Lord. And the same thing can be said about us, that the idea that we can somehow take my retirement income or my um, savings account and I'm going to figure out some way to help me get through the great tribulation and so forth. And I've, I've seen brethren who buy a piece of land, dig a hole in the ground, and they start storing up MREs. It's ridiculous. It truly is ridiculous. Um, being a logistics engineer, I, and I've said this many times before, if you had an unlimited budget and you would follow all of my counsel, same counsel I have given to the U.S. military, um, I can only get you 18 months in this scenario. I, I think I can sustain you and keep you going for about 18 months. Problem is that we have a three and a half year scenario called the Great Tribulation. So there is not enough preparation that you can do to get through this. The only way we're going to get through this is that God's hand will be manifested to us and he will deliver us. And at the end of this, we're not going to be standing around and saying, hey, you know, I, so boy, it's a good thing I, I got all that dehydrated food that I bought from Sam's, you know, those $100 buckets. Uh, no, that's not going to be it. That's not going to be the testimony. We're all going to be saying that the Lord saved us. 
that he's the one that preserved us and protected us in the midst of that entire scenario. And so the call is here by Isaiah. He said, what are you wasting your money for? When it comes to the work of redemption, when it comes to getting into this kingdom, getting to this covenant, being in the kingdom, what is it that you think you need to buy that is going to be worthwhile uh, to be able to enable you to get there? It's not going to be by that. It's going to be by God's hand. And just as God did the work of redemption, and we had nothing to do with it, just as he has made his promise to gather us again, not because of any righteousness that we have, when it comes to this scenario at the end of getting into his kingdom and receiving his everlasting covenant, it's not going to be by anything that we do. Um, instead, the focus of what we should be doing is to recognize who God is, recognize his promises, believe his promises, which is faith, and then our faith is counted for righteousness, and God gets the glory for all that transpires. This is um, the message that uh, comes on the heels of the wonderful things that are going to take place. Um, years ago, I used to say uh, a phrase that if a man uh, could, for just a moment, get a glimpse to see what hell is like, that he probably would come back and commit suicide trying to escape it. At the same time, if he could get a glimpse of what the kingdom will be like, what it will be like to live with the Lord, he'd probably come back and kill himself trying to get there quicker. Uh, those things are at the extremes of our life. And we do not have the impact, the effect on those things. Those are things that do exist. God's in control of them, and we are subject to how the Lord will work it out with us. Now, our confidence is in the Lord, that he'll preserve us and protect us and get us to those days. Amen? All right, we will take up uh, chapter 55 in our next session, and so that will do it for us in Isaiah this week. Shalom, everyone. Uh -huh.